You're listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. July 22nd marks the 150th anniversary of baseball. 50 years ago, the city of Washington, D.C. and President Nixon marked the 100th anniversary of baseball with the All-Star Game at RFK Stadium and a White House celebration of then-former and active baseball-playing greats. To discuss President Nixon's love for the game, we're joined by Nicholas Evan Sarantakis. He is a historian, professor at Naval War College, and accomplished author. His newest book, due out this October, is Fan-in-Chief, Richard Nixon and American Sports, 1969-1974. to uh, Nick, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. To start off as a primer, when did Richard Nixon's fascination with baseball start? I think it started very early uh, as he was growing up. You have to remember that uh, for someone of his generation, someone who grew up really uh, in the interwar period, uh, baseball was the national sport. So he became interested in it. Now, like many Americans, he followed it indirectly uh, until the 1950s. Major League Baseball really was located in the northeast corner of the United States, and that was mainly because of railroads. That was how you would get from New York to St. Louis. You couldn't really play uh, a team in Los Angeles. So he would follow it via the newspaper or via radio. So, But he didn't really watch a game until after, in person, until after he had graduated law school. Where did he watch that game? I believe, if memory serves me, that was a uh, Brooklyn Dodgers game, but it could have been a Washington Senators game. I'm a little fuzzy on that, but he was actually in person. I believe he was up on the Northeast uh, doing job interviews after law school. Why do you think baseball gravitated towards uh, President Nixon? Um, you know, he was his love was politics, history. He did play sports. He did play. He was on the football team. But why do you think baseball resonated with him so much? I think like uh, a lot of other people, it's uh, it's a fascinating sport. Uh, particularly, it's a fascinating if you pay attention to it. You know, if President Nixon, for example, would always keep a scorecard, and he would fill out, you know, who hit, uh, who got on second, who, how many strikes uh, the pitcher had, and how many balls. Then that's kind of an interesting mechanism that really forces you to pay attention to it. Baseball is a bit of a sport that kind of appeals to uh, has a bit of a slower pace than say basketball or football. Uh, It doesn't necessarily translate well onto television. That's my little theory. It's a really fun sport if you're paying attention and you're there in person and it's just the struggle. You trying to do your best, trying to uh, hit the ball Uh, like any, you know, there's a thrill excitement, Uh, baseball, can have some super thrilling moments when you're watching guys hit the ball or do double plays or trying to run it out to second and instead of staying on first. And I think all those things appeal to President Nixon, just like a lot of other average Americans. Nixon loved football. You know, he was he always used football analogies to talk about life, especially life in politics. About uh, he talked about Coach Newman, his high school football coach, uh, telling him that if you get knocked, mm-hmm. if you get knocked down, you get up and play. Uh, another down. How did Nixon think about, uh, you mentioned the scorecards and analyzing the game, but how did Nixon think about baseball? Um, Nixon tended to find it as a recreation, something that he would, you know, could put his brain on hold or stop having to think about, you know, income deferred tax ratios or the strategy of the Sino-Soviet split. 
this was just a great way to take it in game, relax. Uh, he certainly enjoyed it, uh, particularly when he was president. He believed that the senators at the time, the Washington senators played in Washington. Uh, they have since left, and they're now the Texas Rangers. Actually, there were two versions of the senators. The first senators left in 1960, and they became the Minnesota Twins. Baseball put an expansion team in there. They played in Washington for another 10 years or so, and then they moved to uh, Texas and became the Texas Rangers. But it was a great kind of way to bring a very divergent city together uh, for a few hours. Uh, Washington Redskins uh, performed that function today to some degree. It was a kind of bond. So it was a way, way you could kind of talk to your opponents uh, or kind of get together with your colleagues. Uh, so it was just a, a great recreation, and it was a good way to spend a couple hours uh, in the summer sun. So I think he felt that that kind of was what baseball did for America. It certainly had a lot of the striving uh efforts, uh, the struggle efforts that football has, but football has a little bit more of an energetic pace to it than baseball. Uh, Nixon certainly found recreation in it. And just for whatever reason, there seems to be better writing, better literature about baseball than there is football. Um, And I'm sure that certainly appealed to some of his intellectual sides. Uh, He said he'd love to read the um, sports page. Uh, One of the reasons he read the Washington Post was so he could read what people were writing about baseball players. Shirley Povich, uh, who was a sports columnist in the Washington Post uh, during those days, was one of his favorite writers. Povich is the father of Maury Povich, the television uh, journalist today. So there was a lot uh, rewarding. There's also something a little bit uh, timeless about baseball. It's, um, I don't want to oversell that because uh, also it's, you know, it's a sport. You go for the entertainment value. So I think all those things appeal to Nixon. But, you know, there's this great quote, you know, if you want to understand America, you have to understand baseball. And I think some of that resonated with Nixon. I mean, I can certainly see that in his thinking about baseball uh, and, and to some degree football. But football kind of appealed in a different way. So uh, it really was kind of an American sport for him. He enjoyed it. And, um, and in that sense, it was also made him relatable. President of the United States has a very odd job uh, in the sense that he's super powerful. And when we get down to it, not many of us can really relate. And he has to do a lot of different things. All in, And this is any president. And the guy who's in the office today, the guy who'll be there next time, uh, people who've been there uh, before, you have to do so many different things. You have to juggle, you know, figuring out, you know, tax policies. You have to figure out agriculture policies. You have to decide who you're going to point to the bench and so on and so forth. You have to meet with the Girl Scout who sold the most cookies. You're juggling a number of different things, and you're running and pushing, uh, managing uh, a society of hundreds of millions of people. And that is really a really awesome responsibility. And then, you know, taking foreign policy. So there's some really serious demands on the job that probably is very difficult for anyone uh, to understand. But yet we expect the president to be one of us. And there's 300 million of us. There are a lot of us. But going to the games allowed Nixon to some degree to be one of us. You know, and he did not go into the dugouts. He sat in the seats with average fans. So that's kind of baseball and Nixon in a nutshell. Did he, you know, a lot of experts, uh, some historians will say that um, Nixon was an introvert 
in an extrovert's profession. Um, in terms of sports, baseball particularly, um, did Nixon make himself more relatable uh, than other presidents? How does he compare with other presidents in terms of uh, American sports, especially baseball and relatability? There are a lot of presidents who enjoyed the sport, uh, you know, both um, uh, Eisenhower and the first Bush played the sport. Um, uh, President of the second Bush, um, you know, owned the Texas Rangers or managed them. There was a, a minority owner of the team. Uh, anyway, uh, so a lot of people love the sport, um, uh, you know, and it, for one reason or another, it kind of goes hand in hand with golf. It's kind of something that's kind of expected. There are very, very few people have um, who've gotten that far have not liked the sport. I mean, you certainly have seen people who've gravitated a little bit more towards um, uh, football, like President Ford and uh, President Obama was certainly more of a basketball guy than he was a, a baseball guy. But it is um, a sport that is, in many ways, the sport of American presidents. And, you know, as far everyone had kind of a love of the game. I think one of the few people who didn't really like it was uh, Theodore Roosevelt. But um, anyway, it... Um, and Roosevelt liked sports. He just, uh, you know, liked football and boxing and stuff like that. So it's just part of, you know, sports is part of the American social fabric. Um, you know, so in that sense, he was pretty much like a lot of other people who came to the White House or who came to the, to the Oval Office. Uh, what was different was that he basically found ways to use the sport to promote himself politically. He was doing a lot of things. He was living Walter Mitty fantasies, and some of the things that he was doing seemed odd at the time, but now seem kind of commonplace. For example, he invented the practice of calling the uh, team after they won the big game. Um, at the time, that seemed really odd. And the first team he did that with was the 69 Mets. Uh, and uh, John Wooden, the basketball coach at UCLA, this was when Nixon was in office, UCLA, UCLA, UCLA excuse me, was in the midst of winning all those uh, national titles in, in college basketball. And Wooden said that the, one of the highlights of his career, one of the biggest honors, was when Nixon called him after they won the national championship. And uh, nowadays that you know, seems to be pretty much you know, routine. But uh, that was an innovative way for you know, the president to say, congratulations on this major accomplishment. I know it was tough. Uh, you impressed me and all that sort of stuff. So, again, it's kind of one of those things we expect a lot of the president other than just the formal powers in the Constitution. So those, those were great things that Nixon did, or that was one of many great things he did. He also started practice of holding receptions for teams after they won the big game, and he did some other things. But one of the interesting things about Nixon is when you look at the video of this era, you can see him very relaxed. Um, he enjoyed interacting with uh, the, pl the players. It was really fun for him. And he enjoyed talking sports with, uh, with reporters. There was a certain amount of uh, Nixon being extroverted, Nixon being relaxed. And I, I actually kind of seen uh, when he would step on stage uh, at you know, some events and suddenly you kind of see him stiffen up and become the kind of awkward, physically awkward Nixon that we all know and love. Uh, but sports really was kind of a release mechanism for him. So 
he's typical and atypical at the same time. And I think what was really unique about him that doesn't seem that unique nowadays because so many other people have copied him is that he found ways to kind of relate to the American people using baseball. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, which, which, um, what instances are there of you know him uh, talking to to players? Are there any particular instances that stand out in your mind? Oh, uh, there was one moment where Maury Wills, who played for the um, Los Angeles Dodgers, showed up at San Clemente and just said, "Hey, can you tell President Nixon I'm I'm here?" And Wills was a very big uh, star with the Dodgers in the '70s, and you know the guards call and. He's here. Let him in. So, you know, the ability to get in and meet the president without an appointment, I don't think there are a whole lot of people who can do that. I mean, maybe the director of the CIA, you know, um, and Mrs. Nixon, that's probably about it, you know. Um, so it gave people a certain accessibility to him, or people who were in sport had certain accessibility. And then he starts that practice of calling teams uh, after they win the big game. Um, he, there was another instance where uh, Carl Yastrzemski, who uh, won the MVP trophy for the 1970 All-Star Game, um, the, the Yastrzemski, for those of you outside New England, was uh, a huge star with the Boston Red Sox in the 1970s. Yastrzemski decided he wanted to give the trophy to Nixon and um, just said, I want to give it to him. And he happened to be on a plane with one of Nixon's aides, said, I'd really like to give this trophy to Nixon. It took a little time to work at, work out the scheduling. And, but you know, came to the Oval Office. They had a, a meeting. And when you listen to Nixon on the, on the White House tapes, I mean, the guy was super happy. He was just very, it was one of, he said, that was a fantastic event. And then people said, well, the idea was just Strensky's and it was all his because he thought, Nixon thought someone had engineered it, and he's like, what? I, I didn't even know the guy. And they said, well, he wanted to do it. He really respected you. And last time I was in the Nixon Library, that trophy was on prominent display in one of the, in one of the sections of the library. So it um, was something that really resonated with Nixon. So those were the kind of things like sports people could kind of get access to him in a way that um, other people in American society couldn't because in, in one way or another – uh, you know, that was something that Nixon wanted to talk about. It was fun. Uh, it, it was a distraction from the otherwise demanding parts of his job. So, and these were always really interesting. It's not quite Nixon and Elvis, but you know, uh, when you're, when you have the president of the United States interacting with famous sports people, uh, suddenly, you know, they're not the most famous person in the room. So it was probably also a very different experience for many of them as well. You had mentioned Nixon calling the um, calling the New York Mets following the 1969 uh, World Series, their victory over the Baltimore Orioles. Um, who did he talk to? Was it was it Casey Stengel? Um, he talked to uh, no Stengel was uh, man. Uh, Stengel was not managing the team. It was Gil Hodges. So he talked to Hodges, and then he talked to the owner um, Joan Payson, uh, and it was kind of a brand new experience and so they're handing uh gil hodges the manager of the team to the phone and he's who is this and everyone's yelling screaming pouring champagne so it was not necessarily super easy to have a conversation with but you know uh they were just you know they were ecstatic because you know that was kind of like one of the bigger upsets in sports history uh just you know and it's we all love the stories of the underdogs suddenly going from worst to first and the mets really did that um so 
I did, there wasn't a profound conversation. It was just like, hey, congratulations, you did a great job. Handed it off to uh, the team owner. Thank you, thank you. And then, you know, it's like, so this this is a conversation that probably only lasted about a minute and a half. So um, these uh, conversations would get a little more organized as it, it became more expected and more of a tradition. What was the state of um, professional baseball in the 1960s? Uh, all sports go, go through, you know, ebbs and flows in terms of popularity. Uh, but where was baseball? Where was baseball in the, in the 1960s? Baseball was in a tough spot. Uh, we call it the national pastime, and it certainly was that uh, in the first half of the 20th century, um, mainly because there were not a whole lot of other professional sports. Uh, the NFL had started off. Um, I believe it was incorporated in 1920, 1921, but it was professional football remained kind of a product of the Midwest. Uh, it would expand to the West Coast a lot sooner than than baseball, but it was never really um, a national past a national pastime. Even though baseball was only located in the northeast corner of the United States, it had following everywhere. Um, and there's a fun little graphic that you can see um i think it's based on facebook likes but like the los angeles lakers have a following basically they're the basketball team on the, the on this on the west side of the mississippi river well that was the case for a lot of baseball teams you might have you know people in oregon and washington loving the new york yankees even though they're nowhere close to uh new york so baseball had been the national pastime for a long time but then it started to face challenges uh, in the uh, 60s, professional football in the form of the NFL and then also the American Football League, the AFL, became very popular because their sport translated well onto television, the designs of the uniforms, the pace of play. So that started becoming popular, and that's a source of money. Uh, baseball also in inflicted some, uh, some wounds on itself. Uh, when you start seeing a lot of franchise relocation, um, I mentioned before the um, the senators moving to Minnesota and then the next version going to Texas. But the big one was came in the late 50s when the Giants and the Dodgers moved from New York to the West Coast. But then you see things like the Braves leaving Boston, moving up to Milwaukee, and then moving to Atlanta. Uh, you see the can the um, the A's who are now in Oakland. Well, they start off in Philadelphia, then they were in Kansas City, and then they're in um, uh, Oakland. So you see a lot of franchise relocation like that. Um, and in one sense, it kind of made some short-sighted economic interest. You know, you can suddenly have a whole market to yourself. Uh, there's a base, there's a stadium out there that you don't have to share with anyone, or you can run, you know, you can tap into that market. People will build you a stadium. But what this did was it kind of hurt the fan base, it hurt, hurt loyalty. And then you had uh, a number of other challenges. The sport didn't come across as well on television as football. Uh, obviously, that's kind of a win for football, and it's a negative for baseball. So baseball was kind of hurting. Um, it also done some uh, uh, expansion. You had a couple expansion teams, and some of those didn't turn out to be all that stable. Um, so there was a team in Seattle that lasted a year, the Pilots, and then they moved to Milwaukee and they became the Brewers, and they're still there today. The San Diego Padres were not particularly uh, financially stable for a couple of years, for the first couple of years. So 
baseball had a lot of problems and um, they had had some weak leadership as commissioner. 1969, Bowie Kuhn became a commissioner. Uh, you also have labor problems. Uh, Kurt Flood is challenging uh, the system. And eventually in that will lead to free agency in the mid seventies, or it's the first big challenge um, to the system that basically allowed ownership of the dominant say in deciding where people would play. So that didn't play well. There are all these issues off the field issues um, that are hurting the popularity of the game. So baseball needed to just kind of recover and Nixon showing such interest, he'd pop into games on a regular basis in 1969. That was a great selling point for the senators. Uh, come, you know, Nixon loves us. Come on down, see what we got. Turned out the senators were winning. Bowie Kuhn kicked through some um, changes to the play. You had a little bit more offense in 69. Some of that was also due to expansion, diluted pitching. But people were starting to see, you know, doubles and triples and home runs. Uh, for a time there, Reggie Jackson was uh, on pace to break the home run record in one season. So that added a certain amount of thrill. So baseball was hurting and it needed to recover. And it recovered to some degree in the early 70s. Uh, they were putting out a pretty decent product and uh, it still had the attachment of a lot of people. And I don't think it all depends on how you want to configure it and what you want to use as a criteria. But probably while Nixon's in office, it is still the national pastime. I don't think it really gets passed by the NFL and probably until the late 70s or the early 80s. So that's kind of the situation baseball was in. It was dominant, but it lost a lot of its uh, preeminence. Who did uh, who did Nixon follow? Was he was he a Senators fan? Which team did he like to follow the best, the most? Well... He had a rule that he basically rooted for the the team in the city in which he lived. So for a long time, that made him a senator's fan, particularly when you're in Washington as a congressman, a senator, uh, vice president, and eventually president. Um, so baseball did not exist, or professional baseball did not exist in uh, California when he was growing up. He was, in, he was obviously in New York for a couple of years in the 60s. So I believe, but I cannot swear to this that he was a Mets fan during that time period. I know he was a Mets fan when he lived in New Jersey in his post-presidential years, but uh, he was the long and short answer is he was a Senators fan for a very, very long time. Tell us a little bit about the um, centennial celebration for baseball on July 22nd, 1969, um, which I mentioned in the intro. Uh, you had an all-star game in at RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., and you also had uh, President Nixon hosting uh, the current and past greats, the then-current and past greats uh, of baseball. Yes. It was an idea that Nixon came up with himself. Um, that becomes clear when you read Haldeman's diary, the White House Chief of Staff, H.R. Haldeman. Uh, he's like, this is great. And he came up with it with about two months before the event itself, and it just became a issue of trying to figure how to work it in. Um, basically, baseball decided that um, this was their 100th anniversary, and that has to do with the founding of the Cincinnati Reds and the um, uh, National League. So they set the 1869 start of professional baseball, and there were some people who said, well, that's the case, and you need to have the all-star game in Cincinnati. And uh, for whatever reason, Kuhn said, no, it's going to be in Washington. They had they had some receptions uh, the night before 
you know, the kind of uh, uh, big ticket um, black tie dinner and baseball officially uh, announced the greatest players of all time. Um, Babe Ruth was the greatest player of all time and then the greatest first baseman, second baseman, etc. And then they um, put together a, an official uh, roster of the greatest players alive at that point in time because some of your players like Lou Gehrig or Babe Ruth are deceased. And a title that was given to Joe DiMaggio is the greatest living baseball player. And side note, DiMaggio always insisted on being introduced that way for the rest of his life. And a lot of people who were not familiar with the history thought that was DiMaggio's ego run amok. And it might have been, but it was also a title that baseball officially gave him. Uh, so you had all these things, big celebrations. There was going to be kind of a themed 1869 party at RFK Stadium. And then Nixon had this idea, and Bowie Kuhn was a smart guy in the sense that he knew uh, he knew a golden opportunity uh, when he saw it. So he said, sure. And they worked out a deal, uh, scheduling, they kind of wedged it in right before the game. And it was basically in the important – well, all the all-star players in, in 69 were invited, but also uh, members of the Hall of Fame and then leading members of baseball, you know, the general manager of – you know the, uh, you know the Dodgers and the and the Padres and the Cardinals and so forth. Uh, so you have this big reception of baseball people, and you know you, you go okay, what's what's the big deal? Well, this was one of the very first times that you had had a reception for, um, you know, professional sports, and it was like Nixon shows up, he gives a speech where he says, you know, I really. You guys are fascinating. You, I'm always in, impressed by your skills. I, I say that as a guy who tried but never could uh, play the game up to your level. And then, you know, he said things like, if I had had my life to do over again, I, I'd like to be part of baseball, probably as a sports reporter, sports writer. Um, you know, people started giving Ted Williams a hard time because Ted Williams was the manager of baseball. And he had actually said, no, no writers, no reporters in my locker room after the game. And they said, well, you didn't hear him, any him say, you know, he wanted to be a manager or an outfielder. And Williams is kind of like, oh, even Richard Nixon is, deserves one mistake. But um, he gave this really interesting speech. And then he had a reception. Um, he welcomed everyone. And, you know, so there are pictures of him talking to Casey Stengel or Reggie Jackson or Joe DiMaggio. And he was up on the sport, so he chat for a while with Joe DiMaggio, who at the time was uh, a coach with the Oakland A's. DiMaggio was originally from the Bay Area, so he was working with, with the A's, and he was actually uh, giving Reggie Jackson hitting tips and all this sort of stuff. So he basically had this time, and everyone's like, I'm in the White House. What, what am I doing in the White House? Um, and most of us, listen, you know, do not get to go there. Um, you, know, you might go as a tourist or something like that, but these people that have been invited by the president and they're suddenly, they're in the East room, they're chatting with the, the president of the United States and there's the secretary of state and the secretary of defense. And you're like, what, what just happened? And it seemed to many people uh, a very surreal event. And then things kind of broke Nixon's way. It turned out it rained and it was the first time that the all-star game had been canceled because of rain and, you know, it was like Nixon wanted to go. He was up against, uh, he had to leave the next day to greet the crew of Apollo 11. Uh, they had just, you know, walked on the moon for the first time. 
So he's like, I got to go there for that. You know, you know, and it was like, I really want to go to the game. The game was canceled. So he didn't get to go to the game, but that meant that the event basically went on longer and people were just like, you know, Hey, this is great. I'm going to steal myself some white house silverware or something like that. <laughs> but the reporters had nothing to report on. There was no all-star game. So the big lead in a lot of sports sections across the country was Nixon's reception at the white house. So this turned out to be great kind of political pageantry. It would kind of been planned a little like that, but it turned out to be much better because sports reporters had a hole to fill in their, in their sports sections. And that was the story. You talked a little bit about Ted Williams, um, Nixon in an earlier podcast, we talked about, um, Nixon's relationship, uh, with him, especially his political support. Was there any, mm-hmm. were there any other, uh, players that Nixon, uh, particularly liked and had a relationship with, uh, and that supported him, uh, politically? He had a lot of, um, athletes, who supported him in 1960 and in 1968, there was um, a committee called athletes for Nixon. And there were a lot of people whose names you would recognize. Um, Frank Gifford was on, on that organization, Mario Andretti, Kathy Rigby, the Olympic gymnast, um, Wilt Chamberlain. So there were a lot of people who supported him. Ted Williams was one of those guys. And um, he had a picture of, Nixon in his office, I believe it was signed. And, um, you know, that was where their kind of political sentiment kind of lied or where his political sentiment lied. Uh, Nixon certainly admired Williams as his sports ability. Uh, so there was, there was a good relationship there. It was not perhaps as, as close as the relationship Nixon had with George Allen, who was the head coach of the Washington Redskins about a year later. Uh, in that sense, um, Nixon and Allen would uh, talk on the phone often at very odd hours. Uh, but um, there was basically a strong mutual admiration society. Nixon had had a, a good relationship with Jackie Robinson in the 1950s. Robinson had supported him in 60 during the presidential election year and even supported him in 62 uh, when Nixon ran for governor. That relationship didn't last um, uh, they in, mainly Robinson uh, became very bitter uh, towards Nixon over some policy issues, but Nixon always kind of maintained a good, a healthy respect for Robinson's playing abilities. So it wasn't unique. Uh, well, it was unique, but it wasn't the only type of relationship where he was kind of close to one or two uh, athletes. So, and there were a number of athletes who supported him. And I mentioned Yastrzemski showing up just out of the blue, wanting to give him the trophy. So, there were a lot of athletes who respected uh, Nixon, uh, who liked him uh, either as an individual or as a, you know as a politician or as a as a policy wonk. Could you tell us a little bit about the 1972 um, list of all-time greats that Nixon came up with? Um, how was how did that? What was the genesis of that, and and what was that all about? Well, it came up uh, uh, again. It was kind of one of these incidents that was completely not managed, not uh, artificially generated, but a reporter at a press conference just said, can you name or would you name uh, the greatest baseball players of all time? And Nixon starts trying to do it and he's thinking on his feet and he starts naming players and some of the players he's naming are playing the same position. So it's like, well, who's better, you know, uh, Stan Musial or Lou Gehrig or, you know, it's like, well, uh, well, this is really too difficult. And then the, the reporter kind of said, well, would you 
take some time and come up with this list. And next I was like, yeah, sure, this would be fun. So he basically spends the better part of a week um, sitting down creating this list. And a week later, he releases a list, and it's not the nine greatest players of all time. It's essentially it's four different rosters. It's the greatest, and he broke it down into the greatest players, well, a, a team for the pre-war era and the post-war era for each league. So he came up with four teams, and then he came up with each team had a number of pitchers and also a number of reserve. So it wasn't just nine guys. It was more like about uh, 42 guys. Um, so he spent a lot of time. He actually had uh, Ron Ziegler, his press secretary, working on it. David Eisenhower, his son-in-law, helped him with it. I've actually, believe it or not, seen the notes. Those were actually preserved in the White House records. And he sat down and just kind of diagrammed a baseball field and started writing names down. So he creates this list. There were some going back and forth, like who's uh, in the All-Star or who's in the Hall of Fame for you know third base or who's in the Hall, Hall of Fame for you know shortstop. So he works on this, and then, okay, he has a list, and then he sits down and he basically writes an article on uh, his selections. And he said, well, this was really tough because I had to choose between this guy and this guy. And then, you know, you start realizing, you know, there's some really good people at, at, you know, this position and splitting it, you know, into four teams instead of one helped him, you know, pick some more guys. But there's still pe- very good people who didn't get on that list. Uh, one name that comes to mind immediately is Pete Rose. Pete Rose didn't make that list. Of course, in 1972, Rose was still basically in the middle of his playing career. So he had been considered, and Nixon took him off. But um, he did all this and then writes the article, and then he basically has the White House release it. He did do a, the reporter who gave him the idea was a radio reporter, so he sat down and did a radio interview with this guy which is kind of interesting because he kind of opened up a little about some of his thinking and uh, admit, talked a little bit about his brother's death um, and so forth, um, which is all related because a couple of players uh, on the team had fought uh, or some of the guys he had selected had faced serious problems, obvious one being Lou Gehrig, which everyone knows about. But um, then he released this list to the media and it was timed. So it went out, out on Sunday and, in 1972, newspapers were still the main source of news information, and Sunday papers were huge. I mean, um, massive, you know, 900-page collections of type of newsprint. This is where everyone would put their uh, grocery specials and, you know, buy a used car today, you know, get 5% off and all this kind of stuff. So he arranged for it to go out and get in sports sections uh, on uh, a Sunday. Well, the answer is, or the the question is, is how did um, this play in various sports sections? And the answer is incredibly well. Uh, a number of sports sections, even in newspapers that you might think would be very hostile to Nixon, um, gave it prominent play. The Boston Globe devoted an entire page to the to the uh, thing. It reprinted his article. It um, included a roster of all the players, a lot of pictures of individual players, particularly those who were Red Sox. But um, other papers gave a lot of prominent play to it. Um, so it was a great way to get a lot of positive media attention without really doing anything political. And some papers just went crazy. The Indianapolis Star, which does not did not have a baseball team then or even now, basically put it on the front page of the newspaper, not the front page of the sports section, on the front page of the paper. And they actually put it on top of the paper, so it's actually above the masthead. So you have 
Nixon's historic all-star team. And then, you know, have all these pictures and then it says the Indianapolis star. So uh, it just was incredible. And then there's, as always, there's going to be kind of reverberations from this sports illustrated did a thing and they were kind of cynical and they said, this is, you know, a cheesy attempt to get publicity. Um, There's certainly an element of truth to that, but you know, people would selling their news stories, you know, interviewing players who had been retired for a long time, like Herman Kilbrew, who's like, Oh, I'm just stunned. You know, um, what an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Or the, the children of players writing letters to the white house or people saying, well, this is a good pick, but you know, this guy shouldn't have been there and this guy should have been there. So the, it plays out for another week or so in sports section. So it was incredible selection, uh, incredible, um, effort at, political pageantry at getting good uh, publicity. I mean, it certainly Nixon was genuine in what he was doing, uh, but it was also just great. And, oh, by the way, it's the summer of 1972, a presidential election year. So that had a little bit of a factor in, in it as well. So I'm not saying that's why Nixon, you know, just dominated uh, in November, but uh, it certainly was an effort to, you know, convince the American people that he was one of them. And it certainly it, it worked. I mean, people spent some time talking about Nixon as a sports pundit. And um, there are certainly people who were critical of it, who thought his writing was poor and that he made really bad choices. But even when you're quibbling about that stuff, you're still kind of, you know, buying into, you know, the, the undertaking. So it was, in one sense, a brilliant political effort on Nixon's part. It was, and it wasn't really that cynical. I mean, with every politician, there's a certain amount of that. But it really was a genuine effort to kind of, you know, pick who the great players were and then explain why. So uh, it was really an interesting, fun experience doing that kind of serious, serious historical research. What was his, did, did you get a sense of his, what, what, what his methodology was in selecting those players? Not really. I mean, he wasn't really looking for offensive guys or defensive guys. He was, um, uh, I think he was, you know, trying to find the best person in each position. Now, what he ran up against is that some positions, like I think relief pitchers, were not particularly strong uh, during the pre-war period. Uh, there was a greater tendency to have guys play longer. So there was a certain um, uh, problem in finding people. And I think towards my take is that towards the end, I mean, there was obviously like you know, you can have five brilliant guys playing first base and it's one of the reasons why you have it. So you can, you know, you don't have to choose between, you know, this guy or that guy. Um, but I think towards the end, it was like, well, um, who do I, who do I put at shortstop or who do I put at right field or something like that? You know, I don't, I don't have a lot of strong candidates, but the methodology seemed to be, I mean, someone joked that, you know, if there's one of the news stories or sports columnist said, if there's, if there's a, minority group that isn't represented it's not a very important minority group so i mean you know there, there was the mandatory you know um polish american there was the mandatory uh czechoslovakian american you know the catholics and and greek americans i don't actually i don't think there were any greek americans but uh you know it, you know he had a couple people that who probably didn't really belong there one was uh his brother's college roommate, um, but he kind of even, even admitted to that. He, he's a friend of the family, so I put him in. So, um, But this was more just kind of trying to pick the, the guys, and he kind of started with who was in the Hall of Fame and kind of went from there. Um, but again, the Hall of Fame has, has some weak spots. You know, it wasn't particularly strong in relief pitchers, and I don't believe it was 
in the 70s particularly strong in short stops. I could be wrong on that, but there were one or two positions that were underrepresented. Uh, so he had to kind of fill in a little bit of, of towards the end. What do the some of your research has to do with the Nixon audio tapes. How do the tapes help tell this story about Nixon and baseball? They're really interesting because ultimately it's like being there. It's um, I, I joke with friends that it's kind of like uh, being, it's like the West Wing, but for real. So you get to listen to the president and the way they just being the president and you get to listen to him talking to people and when I first started using this, the tapes were just kind of made available, and I'm listening to it, and it's like, okay, I know Nixon's voice, but I have no idea who that other person or that other person is, because you know, just you know, these aren't voices that you recognize. Um, Kissinger, you recognize because it's so distinctive. But who's Haldeman? Who, what does Ehrlichman sound like? Uh, I don't know. Colson. Who knows? So um, as time went on, and people organized the uh, tapes, it got a little easier. But even then. The tapes are, you know, and this kind of reflects the White House, uh, you know, there are a lot of recordings. So, you know, you're kind of scrolling through and it's like, oh, that's Nixon talking about, you know, um, you know, agricultural policy. Not interested. Let's fast forward a little bit more. Oh, there's Nixon. You can listen to it for five minutes. And, oh, that's Nixon about talking about, you know, the midterm elections. Eh, not interested. But as a, as a result, you kind of start picking up what it's like to be in working in the White House. And there were times when, I was, I mean, it was really interesting. I mean, you, there's no question who was the boss. Um, when Nixon talked, people stopped talking and no one really tried to talk over him. Uh, the only person who came close and he only did it once or twice was Haldeman. Uh, you basically get to listen to the president making decisions, thrashing things out. Sometimes he's like, well, look at this memo. What do I do about this? And sometimes it's just guys talk, sitting there talking. Sometimes you wonder, who is in charge because uh, I was listening to one top tape and they're like, you have a meeting here and who this is going to be, who's in it. And he's like, really? Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Mrs. Lombardi's going to be there. Okay. Vince Lombardi's widow. Um, so sometimes you're like, okay, who made this decision? The president doesn't seem to know about it, but other times it was very clear that the president was the guy in the room who was in charge. So, and you see a lot of um, thinking, uh, Nixon thrashing things out. Uh, this is a very sophisticated thinker, not only in sports things, but also in politics things and policy things. Uh, so it was really a rewarding experience. It was, it was like like being there. And um, uh, I, I found it one of the highlights of my professional historical career. One of the uh, famous phone calls that Nixon made was to Hank Aaron um, in the last year when Nixon was in office on April 8th. Um, mm -hmm. 1974, when Hank Aaron hits the his 714 uh, career home run um, and by and bypasses uh, Babe Ruth for the home run record, uh, could you tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that call? Well, that call was after the tapes have been publicly exposed, so there it's not um, a, one that's been recorded. But it was again one of those things that Nixon did. Uh, that's a huge moment in uh, baseball history. Someone is re um, replacing Babe Ruth. No one really can replace Babe Ruth, but he was breaking the statistic record that uh, Babe Ruth had set. So he he gave the phone call, and again, it's one of those things where today it would seem pretty commonplace. And Hank Aaron is like, uh, "Hank, congratulations! And, uh, guess who's on the phone?" And he's like, "What?" So they talk there, and and 
you know, Hank Aaron later tells people he just wanted to talk baseball. And um, it was really a fun conversation. And Aaron kind of jokes, if I'd known he was such a nice guy, I probably would have voted the other way. So it's um, one of those things. It's it's kind of now commonplace, but uh, at the time it was really a unique, different event. Nixon had been considered uh, for the commissioner job, general counsel. He helped with the arbitration dispute in 1985. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, Nixon's involvement in the business uh, of baseball? Sure. Nixon loved the game, and he often thought, or usually thought, that the players were what made the sport. He has a lot of comments about that. But a lot of his backers uh, were um, wealthy individuals who oftentimes owned baseball teams. In fact, uh, the gentleman who owned the Cincinnati Reds during the early 70s was a prominent, I think he was the treasurer of the committee to reelect. So Nixon basically had fans on both sides of the the management labor uh, dispute or divide in uh, baseball really wasn't a dispute, but, you know, on both sides. And a number of the people who uh, established the players union uh, were actually Republicans. Um, and uh, they actually wanted Nixon to be involved with the league. Uh, so this isn't kind of a, a left to center uh, labor union. Uh, and Anyway, they um, basically tried to convince Marvin Miller to let Nixon do legal work for the the players' union. And Nixon was interested in the early mid-60s when he was more or less out of politics. He was basically a corporate lawyer uh, operating out of New York, and he really was was interested in this. Marvin Miller wasn't, um, and I think in that sense he kind of misread the situation. But Nixon was really interested in doing the job. It It didn't work out. But um, it was something that I think Nixon was very interested in. His, his sentiments were with the players. Um, there was talk about making him commissioner. One of the problems that baseball had that hurt it in, in the 1960s is it had weak leadership. Uh, and they eventually fired the commissioner and uh, brought in Bowie Kuhn in 69. So Nixon was, Nixon was interested in baseball kind of on both sides of the issue. I think he probably would um, um, have been as successful as Bowie Kuhn had he become become commissioner. Of course, that would have probably been, you know, the end of his political career uh, if he had taken that. And I think he wasn't ready to write things off uh, as we see, you know, he gets himself elected in 68, but um, he offered to uh, manage uh, a dispute between the players and uh, the owners, uh, the first baseball strike took place in 71 or 72. That was very brief, only lasted about seven or eight days. And then in 85, he managed or arbitrated a dispute between the umpires union and baseball and came up with a pretty decent deal that uh, rewarded uh, the umpires uh, quite health, uh, in a quite healthy sense. So even though he was a Republican who kind of his sentiments were with management um, he he understood the other side of the issue, and this was not simply oh you know you should be grateful that we that you get paid to play a kid's game. He really understood that when you're going out there and you're putting your body on the line, you're taking there's a chance of getting seriously hurt. Um, you deserve to be financially compensated in a reasonable manner, and because you want to make money, uh, it doesn't make you greedy or anything like that. I mean the owners are making money off this thing, so he understood both sides of the issue and actually was far more 
uh, I guess the word is moderate than people probably expected. His sympathies certainly were with the labor side of that divide. Our guest today is Nicholas Evans Sarantakis, professor of history at Naval War College and author of Fan in Chief, Richard Nixon and American Sports, 1969 to 1974, coming soon in October. Our topic was Richard Nixon and his love for America's pastime, baseball. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. This was a fun treat. Thank you for having me. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavertis and your Belinda.